0: Listener-supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story, when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started. I don't know what it is about the American sitcom that just has a way of seeping under our skin. I think for those of us who grew up watching TV, we all have that one show that, to some extent, taught us what life could look like, or maybe what we thought life should look like. <laughs> for instance, my parents used to watch this show, it was amazing, called Que pasa USA, which was essentially a mirror for them. It was about Cubans who arrived in Florida, And there's this one episode they would always play for me as a little kid, where the kids in the show try to hack the U.S. citizenship test.
2: My mother figured out that on the yes and no questions, there is 80% chance that the right answer will be yes. Hey, that's a good one!
1: And when they practiced the questions with the grandparents on the show, antics ensued.
2: Are you willing to take full oath of allegiance to the United States? Yes. Have you ever engaged in prostitution? Yeah! I like it very much.
1: And I bet for a lot of recent immigrants, it was pretty powerful to have a sort of mirror like that, to see their experience fictionalized and joked about on American TV. And then, inexplicably, for my little sister, who grew up in Miami, the show that she watches, that she Still falls asleep to is Reba.
2: The,
1: the show about a single mom in Texas. <laughs> I was talking about this recently with my colleague, Atlantic staff writer Hannah Georges.
0: Listen, I get it. My roots are also firmly planted in the past.
1: <laughs> <laughs> She's been thinking deeply over the last few months about some of the TV shows that she was raised on.
0: My show was Living Single. which is a sitcom that follows four young black women who live in, well, three of them live in one Brooklyn Brownstone, and one of them is technically a neighbor, but she's always over at the house all the time.
2: Hey, Max in the hayos
0: <laughs> and That was the character actually who I latched onto the most. Her name is Maxine Shaw.
2: Maxine Shaw, Your Honor, counsel for the plaintiff.
0: Warn the townspeople, the beast is loose. <laughs> Maxine is, of course, a high-powered lawyer. She does well in the courtroom and really cares about her work and what it is that she does, especially when she's defending women.
2: Today, my look and my law were fierce. I got my client the
3: house, the Winnebago, alimony, and 70% of all the assets he tried to
2: conceal.
0: (laughs) And then we see... This other side of her in a recurring bit on the show where the characters who live in the main brownstone will get back home or they'll walk into a different room and Maxine is just sitting there eating their food.
2: Hey, Max in the house. What's up? What y'all got to eat? Try this.
0: As much as they joke and make fun of her for it, they all love her. That's very clear. And what did the show and those characters
1: mean to you at the time?
0: I remember thinking that they were really cool, <laughs> which is showing, uh, you know, the fact that I was a child, right? Totally. I was like, wow, they live in a house and it's in New York, but I don't even know that I thought about their kind of bigger picture significance so much as I thought that I wanted to do that and be them and like, you know, sit around a table and cook with my friends um, when I had my own apartment one day, like in the big city, right? <laughs>
1: Are you living out that dream now?
0: (laughs) I know, it's so corny to say that back and to realize that, like, oh boy, I sure do live in Brooklyn.
1: (laughs) Even if Hannah didn't know it back then, Living Single, which starred a Black cast, was written by Black writers, was part of a bigger moment in American TV.
0: In the mid-'90s, through the early 2000s, it felt like there were a ton of Black characters on TV every day. You had your Steve Harvey show. I was a big fan of Moesha. Sister, Sister. A smart guy. guy. All these different types of shows. And then in the early 2000s, it felt like they started disappearing one by one. And then by 2006 or 2007, there just weren't that many Black characters on TV at all because those characters hadn't, and those shows hadn't been replaced by new ones.
1: And the question Hannah and many of us viewers were left with was why? Shows by Black creators had been made for decades by that point. Before the 90s, we had shows like The Cosby Show and A Different World. Before that, the Jeffersons. So why did Black shows seem to suddenly disappear for about a decade? And that question feels especially puzzling right now. Because Black TV is all of a sudden
0: back. People talk about this moment we're in as a kind of golden age for Black television. In the streaming age, after the racial reckoning of
1: the last year, Black creators are finding new opportunities again. So now, as a critic and journalist, Hanna set out to figure out what happened over the last 50 years of Black TV history. What went on in those writers' rooms? How did the shows she loved as a kid get made in the first
0: place? And why did they disappear in those dark ages? So I talked to dozens of writers who had been in a bunch of those rooms and who had seen how all of this has unfolded and evolved over the last several decades. And one of the people I spoke with whose experience on multiple different fronts really stayed with me and really struck me um, was Susan Fales-Hill. There is an actual
1: entertainment industry history, and I've actually seen an unbelievable evolution. Susan Fales-Hill was a writer who got her start on The Cosby Show. Her mom worked in the industry for decades before that, and Susan's still working in the industry today. She's someone who's able to kind of tell the whole story of the history of black TV.
0: Because she wasn't just there on one show or in one writer's room. It really seemed like for the entire kind of 50 years of TV that I was interested in, she was there in that history somehow and could speak to the power dynamics at play, the peaks and the valleys, and all of that across decades, including the Dark Ages.
1: This week on the show, Atlantic writer Hannah Georges talks with veteran TV writer Susan Fales-Hill and traces the history of an invisible power behind the scenes of American TV. How writers' rooms over the last 50 years shaped what we watched, what we talk about, and how we understand ourselves.
2: I'm
1: Julie Longoria. This is The Experiment. A show about our unfinished country.
0: Entry into the TV landscape was pretty unusual, uh, in some ways, destined almost. Well, my
3: first introduction to show business was sitting on a piano while my mother rehearsed uh, and her accompanist was playing. My mother was uh, a singer, actress, and dancer. Her name was Josephine (laughs)
1: Pramise.
3: I was kind of weaned by the great divas of yore. People like Cicely Tyson, Bertha Kitt, who was her roommate when they were both young, and <laughs> Diane
0: Carroll, who was her best friend. Susan's mother was best friends with Diane Carroll, and Diane Carroll plays a huge role in the earlier histories of Black TV. She was the star of a show called Julia, which premiered in
3: 1968. This is a beautiful breakfast, Court. And I thank you. I
0: thank me too. It was the first show on primetime that starred a middle-class black woman in the forefront of the series. She played a nurse who was widowed when her husband went to war.
3: It's been a long time since a man prepared
0: my breakfast. Who was still raising a child while working and managed to be, as is expected of any character being played by Diane Carroll, extremely glamorous in the process. Did Daddy used to fix breakfast for you, Mama? Sometimes, when he wanted something. So the era of TV that Susan grew up witnessing was one in which Black people were not leading writers' rooms. And to the extent that there were any shows led by Black casts, often they were created by white people. That was definitely the case with Julia. And those characters tended to conform to white audiences' expectations. For me, growing
3: up watching television, I was very frustrated because... Black people were presented in very monolithic ways.
0: One day, Susan's mother was having dinner, and Bill Cosby happened to be there and asked if Susan had any interest in being a comedy writer.
3: And then I was offered an apprenticeship on The Cosby Show, and that's what started me on the path of being a professional writer. It was very intimidating, and I was right to be terrified because it was an all male room, (laughs) and they were uh, not necessarily looking to welcome with open arms a young woman that they, in their defense, had not picked.
0: So Susan's job was to assist the writers. There were both white and Black writers on the show, but they were almost all men.
3: So I just showed up every day and volunteered every day to make myself useful. So finally, one day, they gave me a task, which was do some research on car insurance in Brooklyn, since the show was set in Brooklyn Heights. And you would have thought someone had given me the Rosetta Stone or something. So I don't even know where I found the information, but I did and wrote up a three-page report about it. And then they realized, oh, she can actually be useful. So then they let me in the room. And then I was the person who wrote down everything they said. I I was the scribe. Uh, And some people would say, oh, well, that's secretarial work. Well, secretarial, schmeckretarial. I was there listening to these people as they were creating the shows that have become iconic. What do you want for breakfast?
2: Cereal. Cereal what? Cereal and bananas. Cereal bananas what?
1: Cereal, bananas, and milk. Cereal bananas
2: milk what? In a bowl.
0: Did you watch The Cosby Show growing up? I did. I watched The Cosby Show like a lot of young people I think did with family. It really was that sort of show that we could all gather around the TV and enjoy, not necessarily because it was a black series, but because it was one about a big and rambunctious and sometimes awkward but always loving family. Um, And I know that my parents very much loved the values being (laughs) instilled uh, and that there were these loving and stern parents who insisted that the kids go to school and be sort of morally upright in ways that very much resonated with my very Christian parents.
1: <laughs> and this show at the time was pretty unusual, right? Like a run by a Black man, starring Black cast. How did it get created? Did you get a sense for how the writer's room might've been different from ones in the past?
0: Yeah. It seems, based on a lot of the conversations that I had with people, that there was some leeway in the Cosby writers' room based on the star power of Bill himself.
3: Mr. Cosby was the voice overall uh, that happened there. And those writers were, they were enlightened men when it came to race. They may not have known everything but they treated these characters with enormous respect.
0: The writers may have been on board with Cosby's vision for the show. But Susan remembers that was not always the case with the network executives. I mean, one of them said, this isn't a real Black family.
3: And I said, why? And he said, well, they live in that house. And I said, well, my Haitian grandfather lived in a house like that. He was an immigrant bought <laughs> that." What are you talking about?
0: And the suggestion, of course, was that they are too. Wealthy, they're too established socially to be relatably or believably black.
3: And I thought, all right, this may represent not the majority of African Americans, but neither does a show like Murphy Brown. What what percentage of the white population did Murphy Brown represent?
0: So in keeping with how much of an influence Cosby had on what the show could do around wealth and its representation of a comfortable, upper-middle-class Black family, he also had a lot of say over how it did or didn't handle issues of race.
3: Mr. Cosby did not believe in calling out the race of the Huxtables. Their identity was palpable through the art on their walls, the ways in which Felicia looked at her children and looked at him, the fact that they'd been to these historically Black colleges. There were many, many elements, but they never sat around talking about Blackness.
1: You know, something I always think about and grapple with as someone who loved The Cosby Show as a kid (laughs) is um, how we think about that show now after we've seen all the allegations against the creator, Bill Cosby. How does Susan think about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, something I knew going into this story was that it would be impossible to separate the legacy of the Cosby show, including all the ways that it changed TV, and black TV especially, from the legacy of Cosby himself, who, as we all know, was convicted of felony sexual assault and recently had that conviction overturned on a technicality. And that's something that Susan said she still thinks about and still struggles to describe even today. It's devastating to,
3: to hear the stories and to read the stories of these these women. And, and my heart goes out to absolutely every person in this situation. How do I reconcile it? I don't. I'm, I'm 59. I've grown up around a lot of very complicated people. So for me, nothing excuses what happened. Nothing does. However... I don't believe that what happened should diminish what the show meant to America and what that show did for
0: America. She felt like her primary job in the Cosby writers' room was to learn. And so it wasn't really until she left that room and went on to write for the spinoff of the Cosby show, which was A Different World, Uh, the series that followed... Denise Huxtable to college at Hillman, a fictional historically Black university. That environment is where Susan really got to spread her wings more as a writer.
3: And that was really joyous. And people, especially in those days, would get very upset with Black shows because they didn't feel represented. And... On A Different World, we had a chance to show everyone from a Mr. Gaines. Let me give you some advice. Who ran the pit. Are you
2: crazy? (laughs) Well, you must be driving the woman you love to some other man in your own car. Well, I hope he's going to pay for the gas.
3: Then, you know, Colonel Taylor, who was a conservative. Miss Gilbert. And that military man. i'd like a little less flippancy
0: more effort and you might think about getting a tutor
3: no i might not and then you know whitley who was the the ultimate bougie
2: princess colonel taylor (laughs) i appreciate what you're trying to do but the only math problem i ever have to solve in life is how many batteries will it take to put my little pocket
3: calculator So many Black women have come up to me and said, oh, that's me, or oh, my God, that was my roommate at Spelman.
0: In the second season of A Different World, Susan actually asked Diane Carroll, her mother's friend, to come on the show and play Marion Gilbert, the mother of the show's Southern debutante, Whitley Gilbert. So a role befitting Diane Carroll.
2: Ladies. This bedspread is positively at war with those curtains. Mother, this is Kim's bedspread. Oh, well then, how could you have
3: known, Carol? And I remember at the end of her first taping, she gathered the cast and she said, you don't understand what it is that you're living, but I want you to recognize it. And she said, when I was first on Studio Lots in the 50s, I was the only Black woman. She said, look at this. You have a Black directing executive producer, you have Black writers, you have a Black head writer, and you walk on this lot like you own it. She had a big jeroboma of champagne and gave everybody champagne.
0: Has there ever been a more glamorous person on this planet? No, no. And she was that way
3: in private life.
0: In the first five seasons of A Different World, there wasn't a ton of objection earlier on to some of the issue-focused episodes like the episode about date rape, for example. But there's a real tension around the episodes that would become the first and second episode of the final season. And those two episodes followed Dwayne and Whitley, who were newlyweds at the time, on their honeymoon in Los Angeles. And Whitley somehow ended up on her
3: own and stuck in the middle of the Los Angeles riots. Hello. Hello. This
2: is Whitley Gilbert. Um,
3: and a witness to much of what went on.
2: i um, in uh, Could you send me a limo right away?
3: Uh, which then led to her telling the story back at the dorm and all of our characters having their responses to that moment.
1: You know, if we had strong Black leaders... None
2: of this would have happened.
1: We do have strong black leaders, Maxine Waters, Jesse Jackson, Brother
2: Malcolm. Man, you need to check an obituary column. Malcolm died in 1965.
3: That was the George Floyd of its day, obviously. Rodney King and then uh, what precipitated the riots, which was the not guilty verdict for those who had beaten uh, Rodney King and had been caught on video. The show came about because the uprising happened during our hiatus. And when we got back to the writer's room, actually two of our youngest writers, Reggie Bythewood and uh, Gina Prince Bythewood, who are both now legendary in their own right, really made a plea for us to address this because we always addressed topical issues head on. And they said, "If, if we don't do it, who will and we must. And so we did to the consternation of the <laughs> network <laughs> who are really trying to put this behind them. I did not see this as a ratings bonanza. And I believe to this day that it cost us our another season.
0: I think the general discomfort with These episodes in particular reflected a real sense of anxiety about what it looks like when Black people tell stories that are not easily digestible, quick references to racism in which there's no real good or bad guys, but just things happen. And the idea that an issue directly affecting Black people would be covered through a lens that is unmistakably Black and that doesn't shy away from the idea of blame or the idea that there are going to be viewers across the country seeing this who might be uncomfortable with some of the conclusions really was unsettling for some people.
1: So when A Different World Ends, Where are we in the bigger story of the history of Black TV? Like, what happens next?
0: Right after A Different World goes off the air, we start seeing A Living Single, which is a show created by Yvette Lee. Bowser, who was in the A Different World room. Um, Sister, Sister comes out in 94, and that's from Kim Bass, the sitcom that followed T and Tamara um, as (laughs) long-lost twins who find one another in a mall. Incredible concept. Um, (laughs) 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 And then, you know, you have have a slate of sort of young person-focused sitcoms that come up. There's Smart Guy... Moesha, that period from about 94 or so through 98 was really rich um, in that specific coming-of-age type sitcom space. And a
1: lot of those writers came out of the Different World Writers Room, right?
0: Yeah. There's so much overlap and so much interpersonal and kind of community support for one another that helped a lot of people break through because they had one another. And um, what, what happened after that? Well, this is where we get to that period that I noticed as a kid. Moesha ended in 2001, Soul Food went off the air in 2004, and there weren't a ton of shows featuring Black characters that took their place. Susan told me that this was a difficult time for her too. She was pitching ideas and kept being told that they needed to be more relatable. (laughs) And eventually she just decided to take a break from TV writing. So many of the people that I talked to remembered feeling like they just couldn't get their ideas through at all.
1: In, in your reporting, did you find a reason why, like economically or like industry-wide, why people like Susan were
0: having a hard time getting their ideas through? So as broadcast networks were trying to compete with cable networks that were popping up and pulling away from their audiences, they really doubled down on wanting to make shows, whether they were sitcoms or dramas, often procedurals, uh, that were going to attract really big audiences. And in order to pull in the broadest audiences possible, that often meant that they were focusing on shows that were led by white actors, that were produced by white writers, directors, et cetera. And of course, there are a handful of exemptions, but for the most part, Black writers who often were shut out of those rooms because there was a belief that they couldn't write white, whatever that meant at the time, whatever that means now, those writers were shut out of the industry altogether if they couldn't get into the rooms where the few Black shows still being made were produced
1: the break, how black TV comes back. Hi everyone, this is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Ben Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com listener and get started. I'm Julia Longoria. This is The Experiment. And we're back with Atlantic writer Hannah Georges. She grew up watching iconic TV shows from Black creators and writers like Living Single, Moesha, Sister, Sister. And then in the early 2000s, they disappeared. Black writers struggled to get into writers' rooms, the TV shows they were pitching weren't getting made. But in 2005, something started to change.
0: What's interesting is a lot of people attribute the slow crawl <laughs> out of the dark ages to the popularity of shows made by Shonda Rhimes. Shonda Rhimes' first big show is Grey's Anatomy, which premiered in 2005.
2: During being a
1: douchey. He's making me stand at the back of the OR while he reattaches Rick's fingers. I can't even touch a retractor. I hate him.
0: It really took you know a long running at the time medical series with a very diverse cast a show that wasn't billed as a quote unquote black show but that was just a noticeably diverse multi ethnic ensemble cast produced by black women it took that leading into scandal and from there blackish for the dark ages to really start shifting to being in the past and not just the state of play and and what contributed to that rise So as we see with a lot of Black TV history, you know, in in Shonda's case and in many other people's since her, it has taken the cosign of another prominent Black person to bring them on board so that they get that first initial opportunity. Shonda has been that person for people. Issa Rae has now been that person for people. But oftentimes it's that first entry point that is the hardest and that where most people find that, established industry veterans who don't necessarily find their experiences relatable or compelling don't always take a chance on them. Now we're seeing an explosion of television shows created by Black writers and directors. Today there's Insecure, Atlanta, Dear White People, Pea Valley, and just so many more. The streaming's played a really big role in that, in part because feedback from viewers is more direct than ever. Susan herself is part of that, too. She's back in a writer's room, this time as an executive producer on Lena Waithe's show 20s, which is on BET.
3: So let's be clear. I'm, I'm the midwife, called the midwife. <laughs> it's, it's Lena's <laughs> baby. I, I didn't create it. It's hers. <laughs> but it's about a group of young Black women in their 20s navigating... Hollywood in this kind of golden age. I'm black and I'm gay. Hollywood should be knocking down my door. But and the central character a moment, is a young black queer woman, which again is is groundbreaking and revolutionary. What did you like about it? I like that it's about black love. And I am just glad it exists. Those are not good reasons to like a show. We need to support black
2: shit. No, we should support good shit that just happens to be black.
3: And something I don't think, actually, when I look back at a different world, we never even said the word queer. We had no queer characters, So it's just a new day. And also, tonally, there's a lot more freedom. I came from the three jokes per page. (laughs) Every scene ends with a button, and that's no longer the mandate, and that's no longer what people find funny. And in terms of uh, the writers' room, it was very exciting because, not by design, but I ended up staffing all people of color.
0: When Susan talks about this experience, it's hard not to think about her bringing Diane Carroll onto the set of A Different World. That when Diane Carroll looked around and saw so many Black actors, that was a big deal then. Leading a show like 20s, having this experience now, is a big deal for Susan.
1: I guess my question for you, Hannah, as someone who thinks about this really deeply, is when you look at all these changes that have happened, starting back when Diane Carroll was starring in Julia in the late 60s, all the way through this new golden era we're living now of black TV. What does it tell you about the culture and about the power structures that make shows like a different world and blackish possible?
0: I think what's clear and what remains true is that a lot of the moments that feel like big social and cultural progress have a real element of economic motive behind them. And as the demographics of the country continue to shift, it's clear that viewers are, you know, asking for a broader array of shows that that are more thoughtfully addressing certain topics that are the kinds of things they want to engage online or talk about with their friends and that the older models um, of assuming relatability solely from the perspective of a straight white man or a set of white friends moving into a city like New York and interacting with no people of color. <laughs> just doesn't just doesn't work anymore. Um, it doesn't work from a storytelling perspective and it doesn't work economically. And I think that we'll see more shifts toward just a more interesting TV landscape. And going back, I guess, to where we started, how do you think
1: this moment compares to the one that you grew up in?
0: I think it's really exciting that there are enough Black shows on TV for younger viewers, especially, to decide that there are shows they're not interested in and don't care about.
2: (laughs) You know, I, I
0: think that the idea that you can be a viewer whose decision matrix is not just, okay, well, are there any Black people on this, but can be... I don't know about the humor style of the show. It doesn't quite work for me. So I'm going to watch something else, right? That there's horror series and films and all these things that are allowing for a kind of diversity within the massive category that is Black TV.
1: Yeah. It's shows that are telling stories of a person, not just like, oh, here's a, whatever, the Black experience.
0: (laughs) Right. right. And I, I think in general, I find myself most interested by shows that are about characters who are black as opposed to shows about blackness and it seems like there's more of that now than even in the last five years or so and that's that's exciting to see that there can be a bunch of different shows about black characters that very rarely touch on racism not because it doesn't affect people's lives but because the characters have so many things going on that their lives are not defined by this force that exists outside of them
2: This episode was produced by Meg Kramer. Reporting by Hannah Georges. Editing by Katherine Wells and Julia Longoria. Fact check by Jack Siegelstein. Sound design by David Herman with additional engineering by Joe Plourd. Music by Tasty Morsels and Nelson Nance. Our team also includes Tracy Hunt, Peter Bresnan, Emily Botin, Gabrielle Burbet. Alina Coleman, and me, Natalia Ramirez. This episode is part of The Atlantic's Inheritance Project about American history and Black life. You could read Hanna's article, Most Hollywood Writers' Rooms Look Nothing Like America, and more on our website, theatlantic.com experiment. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Experiment is a co-production of The Atlantic and WNYC Studios. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment.
1: One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started.